by nature are sharks aggressive? No, they're not. They're not. So, so this is mushrooms growing out of a wasp. I mean, we're just we're exposed to literally thousands of synthetic chemicals just in our everyday life. My family is normal. I just think, oh, every family is just three people. So if we put hair inside bricks, it will be like insulating your home. Hi, I'm Jake Morecambe. I'm Leah Summerglue. Welcome to Think Sustainability, where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. On the show today, this is where the bins could be in the next like twelve weeks, a couple of months is what we could have as a product. And then the next stage is like in the future, as the technology advances, this is where the bins could be going. Waste disposal of the future: how equipping our bins with sensor technologies could prevent waste to landfill. And seafood fraud. Does an eco label really mean your product is coming from a sustainable source? But first, so this particular experience would have been back in about 2013. Um, at that time, we were documenting outbreaks of this brown plant hopper, this this terrible uh, problem for rice production in the region. This is Finbar Horgan, a research fellow from the School of Life Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney. Finbar's main line of research looks at plant-insect interactions and the use of pesticides. And right now, he's talking about his work in the agricultural fields of Sri Lanka. I mean, I remember watching farmers bending over to fill their canisters, and another farmer coming by and just spraying them in the face. Spraying them in the face with what? With pesticide, because they're 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 walking up and down the field spraying while the other one is filling the can. There's there's a lack of unconsciously underst- doing that? Uh, unconsciously, yeah, yeah. They're not aware. They're not aware of the dangers. They're not aware of the dangers. Uh, there has been studies. Um, I, I remember one in particular in Ecuador with um, potato producers that was very interesting, where they put dyes. So a kind of a an ultraviolet dye was put into the pesticide, and then afterwards they would photograph people to look at where the residues were and people had it running from their nose and running from their mouth and you know all of their hands so you know, people just aren't aware of the potency the danger uh, of the pesticides and um, you know and how, how easily it gets it gets on them I, I remember another time myself driving a product from you know in Ireland you know, driving from one part of the country to another and Ireland is small uh, and coming out at the other end and all my face was peeling <laughs> so, so these are very dangerous products. Why can pesticides be bad? Pesticide has a, an interesting effect on some insects where it actually increases their reproductive capacity. So instead of killing them, you get a, an increase in reproductive output. They eat more. They disperse more, and in Asia, the the insects that we were most interested in, which was one called the brown plant hopper, causes hundreds of thousands of hectares of damage to rice because of pesticide. Why? What? What is happening with the pesticide and the insect to accentuate its reproductive rate? The ecological reason for it is that because the insect knows it's stressed, so the population is stressed, it then knows it's a stressor and it reacts by trying to produce uh, more offspring. This is not something that's just in insects. It actually was first discovered in sponges, in sea sponges. Uh, it's a thing called hormoligosis. 
And it also occurs, for example, in uh, some plants. So, for example, beans, it's very well known that if, if beans are attacked by insects, they produce more. We call that overcompensation. The plant is saying, I'm in trouble. Something is attacking me. I'm going to produce more offspring. So the same thing happens with, with insects. What's in pesticides most of the time? Mainly neurotoxins. What's neurotoxins? So neurotoxin will actually um, stop neural transmission in, in insects. So these are these are quite potent. Now many of them would have been banned. Now, I mean a lot of a lot of the most potent pesticides are being banned. But there are things like um, synthetic pyrethroids, which are like a, similar to a defense that plants have. There are growth hormones in things like juvenile hormone, which don't allow the the insect to properly re, uh, grow and and develop. So the whole load of things. I mean, the worst things would, of course, be the neurotoxins. How might that have an effect on a farmer? Like, aside from just the short-term exposure that you had and it was burning your face and lips, like, what are some of the long-term health implications of being exposed to those sorts of chemicals on a daily basis? Oh, I think they're severe. I mean, um, unfortunately, I think uh, research into the consequences of pesticide overuse has diminished. I mean, this is something that we see. Funding uh, doesn't seem to be going in that direction much anymore um, as we become very much pro-industry in, in seeking funding for research. First, of course, there's nauseas and things, and we've all gone through them. I mean, my, me, myself, I've, because, you know, I work in agriculture um, in visiting farms uh, where I will come out with nausea, you know, vomiting or, or dizzy, it worries me. I mean, I don't know what the long-term consequences are, even my own health, and I avoid it very much. There are surprising things. So there was a study out recently, uh, I suppose now a couple of years ago, that showed that farmers in the in the United States, there was a link between pesticide use and depression uh, among farmers. I remember talking to a farmer in Nicaragua, in, in Central America, who had uh, bananas, and he spoke about how one of his children was born with the tongue stuck to his palate, another had um, liver problems, he himself had problems. Uh, they went to court. Uh, they won against the, the the company that was producing the nematicide, but they only got something like $50 per uh, farm worker, even though they won the case. So, you know, we're talking about very powerful companies as well that are protecting the rhetoric around their, the, their, their pesticides. You know, they want people to think these are very essential products that we need, but they are dangerous. They're definitely dangerous. You're part of a campaign to get a certification of no pesticides. Can you tell me a bit more about that? What's that? Where okay. is that? Okay, so um, normally what people see are, are there, there's sort of a, a two options. They say, okay, there's organic production and there's conventional. And conventional means using chemical fertilizers, chemical pesticides, transgenics, etc. industrial agriculture. Now, I see this dichotomy as a bit of a problem because organic agriculture is difficult to do. What are some of these organic fertilizers? What are they? Mainly they're mulches and, and you know, dung, for example. Cow dung would be used a lot. Decomposing materials uh, would be used a lot. Uh, chemical fertilizers then would be things like ammonia, urea, things that you can buy in, a, in an agricultural supply store. And when we interviewed farmers, we interviewed over 300 farmers um, in, in Sri Lanka recently, and we asked them what are their main problems. And their main problem is they cannot access uh, organic fertilizers, they don't have the infrastructure around uh, uh, organic production. It's much easier to get chemical fertilizer. Now, if you get a chemical fertilizer, and remember in a country like Sri Lanka that the government subsidizes chemical fertilizer. So straight away, the organic farmers are at a disadvantage 
and because the organic farmer uh, has no benefit in terms of using organic fertilizers in terms of the economics of the organic fertilizer organic fertilizer would cost something like twenty thousand Sri Lankan rupee and for the farmer you know after the government subsidy will cost only a couple of thousand so it's a huge amount of um, money that they're saving on fertilizer so organic farming is difficult many farmers when we ask them you know why you don't do organic or why why did you stop doing organic agriculture they will tell us well it was too hard we couldn't source the the products we couldn't source uh, fertilizers uh, we have a whole series of problems and the reality is that you put on fertilizer you do increase yield but we don't see the same thing with pesticides you put on pesticides you don't get an increase in yield and we've done several experiments now in rice where there's no increase in yield so all that pesticide is basically a contaminant the organic movement is a conventional sort of scapegoat for conventional farmers you know it's because they'll say oh you can't do organic you can never produce enough it's difficult we'll go conventional well what I'm saying is we need to get something in the middle ground that says let's go pesticide free use nitrogen because yeah uh, it's obvious you, you you apply fertilizers you'll get more yield and that's fine but let's get rid of the pesticides one of my colleagues did an experiment with thousands of farmers in Vietnam where he said to the farmers you know please grow one of your rice half of your rice field using your conventional method and the other without pesticides is everything else the same but no pesticide and none of those farmers saw any gain from the pesticide so what I'm saying is if we can certify that products are chemical free this would be a huge advance a huge advance to look at a place like Sri Lanka or a number of these Asian countries in which you're referring to the reason that aside from, you know, governmental subsidy to use pesticides, is another reason that they might have initially started using them in the first place is because these are subtropical regions. They have, like, an inundation of pests that might be around. Is that a factor at all? Or We have tried to trace why farmers produce rice, either organically or conventionally, and why they use pesticides. And it's, it was surprising for us. I mean, farmers, we often tend to think that farmers are producing rice organically because they have some compassion towards the environment. Uh, the reality is their main reason in Sri Lanka for producing organic rice is health. They are worried about their health, and many of them are, are consuming some of their own product. They don't want to consume product that has pesticides. On the other hand, when we ask farmers who are growing rice conventionally, why are they using pesticide? Why do they not think they could grow it without pesticide? They say, we are using modern varieties. What does that mean, really? So a high-yielding variety. I mean, if you go back to, and this goes back to the Green Revolution, so in, back in the 1960s when you know, scientists said, well, we are going, you know, rice produces a low amount of grain, so and a rice field back then would have produced 1.5 to 2 tons per hectare of rice. Now you can get certain varieties that are producing 8, 9 tons per hectare. So that's a huge advantage. The problem, and a lot of people go straight to the Green Revolution and, and point the finger at the Green Revolution for this, is that very early on, uh, the private sector got involved. And the private sector said, okay, now you have high-yielding varieties, you also need pesticides, you also need fertilizer. In fact, fertilizer you do need because you cannot produce high yields in high-yielding varieties without applying fertilizer. But you don't need pesticides. So the message has got through. I mean, this is now you're talking about nearly 60 years of Green Revolution. So farmers have been indoctrinated. 
that the varieties that they are growing need pesticide. So when we talk to organic farmers, it's very interesting as well, and we ask them, what varieties are you growing? 90% are using traditional varieties because they believe if they grow even in an organic uh, field, if they grow modern varieties, they'll get problems with insects and disease, etc. But that's not true. As we've done the experiments, you know, we've done experiments, intensive experiments with with high-yielding varieties. We don't use pesticides. We don't have problems. Finbar Horgan, research fellow from the School of Life Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney. You're listening to Think Sustainability on 2SER 107.3. of the world's fisheries are being pushed beyond their biological limits. That figure comes from the World Wildlife Fund. This has put fish like the common Atlantic bluefin tuna on the endangered species list. So when it comes to eating seafood, how can we make sure the food on our plate isn't there as a result of overfishing? Shane Anderson has this story. For 500 years, the Grand Banks of Newfoundland in Canada was home to a thriving cod fishing industry. The first European explorers enthusiastically wrote that the water was so plentiful you only had to lower a basket into the water and it would fill itself with cod. Then, one day, in 1992, suddenly, nothing. There were no fish. The government found that stocks had dropped to 1% of historical levels due to overfishing. In response, they imposed a ban on all fishing activity along the coast. Not only had overfishing destroyed the natural ecosystem, but the ban meant that 40,000 people lost their jobs. The environment and the economy was ruined. Since the ban on fishing 25 years ago, cod stocks have been recovering. But even then, there's still only around 10% of cod compared to when the industry first started. The incident left people wondering, how did we let this happen? Somehow, what what was perceived as an infinite resource, or at least everlasting resource, came to a standstill. And I think immediately the industry and the world realised that, you know, the resources that the ocean has gifted us with, it's not forever if we don't take care of it and protect it. This is Anne Gabriel, and she's the Oceana Program Director for the Marine Stewardship Council, or MSC. It was originally an initiative of the World Wildlife Fund and Unilever, but now it's independent. The MSC was formed in the aftermath of the Newfoundland fisheries collapse, specifically to make sure something like this wouldn't happen again. Ocean protection is extremely critical. The fishing industry in itself actually contributes about US $500 billion a year to the global economy. That's a huge amount. The fish is actually one of the most highly traded food commodities in the world. And don't forget, over 58 million people around the world actually have their livelihoods based on income through fishing. The MSC offers a certification that proves seafood is sustainably caught. This sets a trustworthy standard for wild catch fishing, as in fish caught in the ocean rather than farmed in tanks or enclosures. According to Anne, the MSC certification starts at the fisheries level and works in three ways. The first principle is ensuring that particular species has got a healthy number of fish stocks in the ocean. The second principle would be to minimise any kind of destruction to the marine habitat, whether that's turtles or whales or dolphins or seabirds. And the third principle that the fishery needs to adhere to is to make sure that they've got management systems and processes 
that can cater to changing environment because the ocean is an extremely dynamic landscape. And as it changes, we have to make sure that the fishery is in a position to have management to address that change. The next step is ensuring the supply chain is sustainable. This means keeping track of the journey a fish takes from a fishery to your dinner plate. If it's imported from overseas, this could mean making sure fishermen are paid minimum wage and that there's no child labour involved. Suppliers, processors, traders, restaurants, retailers, supermarkets need to prove that they are sourcing this seafood from these certified fisheries. So there's a process of audit that goes through the supply chain before they are given a license or the permission to use the eco-label at the end product. So it's gone through quite a bit of a rigorous process. Seafood that is MSC certified gets a blue tick. You might have seen one of these in the supermarket, hanging off a price tag or printed on a box in the freezer section. This is called eco-labeling. Anne explains. Basically, it's a logo or a symbolic identity that appears in many end consumer products, sometimes even services. I mean, it, it, it seems like a simple logo or label that's been sort of put onto products, but really the process of certification of a fishery sometimes can take up to minimum 12 to 18 months. So after this incredible effort to hold every step of seafood sourcing accountable to ethical values, sustainability comes down to that one blue tick. In the end, it's the consumer's responsibility to buy the right product. But when we're grocery shopping, there's lots of options to choose from, and labels can sometimes be deceiving. There are seafood brands that market themselves as ethical when the reality is a little more complicated. There's also a whole lot of labels where, well, it doesn't actually represent that. For instance, Dolphin Safe. Well, what does that actually mean? This is Paul Burke, Associate Professor of Marketing at the University of Technology, Sydney. Yes, OK, the dolphins are being kept safe as we farm this product, particularly around tuna, but that doesn't necessarily mean that other species aren't threatened. So whether it be sharks, whether it be turtles. So consumers are sort of getting one side of the story. It's hard to say for sure how much mislabeling or seafood fraud goes on in the industry. Because seafood is often imported and exported, it's difficult for governments to keep track of what goes in and out of the country. Companies are often left to regulate themselves. So we rely on Namibia, Argentina, South Africa. A lot of our fresh fish comes from New Zealand. And so there's regulation in some countries are better relative to other countries. And it's really hard. We're talking about the retailer. They don't know where that's coming from. So it gets worse and worse and worse as you go all the way up the supply chain. MSC certification is also an opt-in system. For some companies, this means there's little incentive for going through the arduous process of certification when it doesn't necessarily make a big difference to sales. There is definitely a rise in fair trade sales right across the board in terms of coffee, in terms of chocolate. But at the end of the day, a lot of the market shares are not quite as high as, as one would think. There's a number of different studies out there that say when consumers are in the marketplace, yes, they're thinking about these things, but they've also got to think about price. They've got to think about quality. They've got to think about whether they like the brand. They've got to think about uh, all these different things they're trading off and welfare issues, ethical issues are just one part of that component. So how does Australia stand up for MSC-certified seafood? According to Anne, we're not actually doing too bad. To date in Australia, we have about 370 overproducts using the MSC eco-label, and that's quite a lot. Already 16% of commercial wild-caught seafood in Australia is MSC-certified. So that's quite fantastic. 
In fact, the Western rock lobster fishery in Western Australia was the first place in the world to be MSC certified back in 2000. The fishery has strict requirements on minimum size and catch quotas using baited pots and traps. It's a promising start, but sustainable seafood only takes up 16% of the commercial market in Australia. In the long term, if we want to prevent another collapse like the one in Newfoundland, this figure isn't high enough. Paul Burke says it's up to us, the consumers, to use tools like MSC certification to question labels and demand for transparency in the supply chain. Obviously, it's not going to be out there in black and white in terms of you know companies t- telling us that, yes, they're committing fraud. But if we as consumers are looking at it, we're saying, hey, we're not getting the exact information that we're looking for, and there seems to be an asymmetry here. I think as consumers, we want to be better informed. We want to have tools and pieces of information that we can trust. Paul Burke, Associate Professor of Marketing from the University of Technology, Sydney, ending that story by Shane Anderson. What do you do when your job is taken by a robot? Where does all your e-waste go? How do you split your digital assets when you break up with your partner? This is Think Digital Futures. Each week, an exploration of the moral and mind-boggling questions that face us in the digital age. You can listen on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Digital Futures. Now, you've probably heard of smart cities, but have you heard of smart bins? A group of students from the University of Technology, Sydney, recently participated in a hackathon, devising an idea to embed our garbage bins with smart sensor technology. By chipping the bins, you could collect data on how much waste they're holding, when they're reaching capacity, and when they should be relined. The goal is to think of efficient ways to reduce the amount of waste in green spaces and ultimately reduce the number of half-empty bean bags going straight to disposal. Sean and Jonathan were two of the students behind this idea at the hackathon. I got Jonathan and another friend of mine who we both study engineering. So we entered as a team of three and then they gave us... Three more people? Yeah, and then we partnered up with another three people to Mm. form a bigger group. Had you done a hackathon before? No. No. I've never done anything like it. No. It just came up on my newsfeed because I like I follow the engineering page, so I was like, oh, why not? <laughs> what was it like? Um, I, it was different to what I expected. You don't have to know anything about coding. That's probably a little bit of a misconception. Some people think you have to be able to code, you know, like hackathon, but no, it's more ideas hacking. So you just come and you bring ideas and try and develop a solution in two days. There'll be some people there that can code and they help develop your solution into a mobile application in this case, but you don't have to know how to code. And what was your idea in this instance? So it's essentially incentivized waste disposal. So getting people to put their rubbish, actually put it in the bin through using a points system, kind of like a rewards program at any, like Woolworths, Coles, same sort of thing. And it gives you discounts. So as your points add up, then you can then apply them to get a free coffee, bar credit points. We had charity donations. There's just a couple of things we threw out as an idea, but it can kind of go anywhere. And how do you kind of get the point? How does it recognise if it's your rubbish that you're throwing into the bin? So we came up with a few kind of fail-safes. Like we were either thinking we'd do it as a weight-based thing or we'd do it as an item-based thing. So you can either measure weight or you can count how many items go through a scanner. And then there was a couple of other things like your points max out in a day or something yeah, or a week or... or... A week. So you can't collect thousands of points yeah. and then get, like, tons of free stuff. It'll just drop out after a week of not using it or whatever. 
Yeah, and all talking in like because it was a two-day thing and like you said, it's not necessarily polished. It was more so an mm. idea. But what is this sensing technology that would work for an idea like this? We built on, we developed on uh, an existing sensor that engineering building at UTS utilizes currently. Um, they, use a sen- uh, they use a people sensor to track people walking through doors to count the number of people entering the building. Um, we figured we could use a similar sensor, adapt it to detect simply just rubbish and when you put the rubbish into the bin it'll count the number of items going in it, it'll utilize nfc technology to connect with your phone you what's nfc it. it's this wireless technology where you just tap your phone on this sensor and it transfers the data like that similar to what allows you to pay with your phone that's nfc like and then the samsung mobiles can transfer data by tapping it's the same technology so all the new smartphones it's becoming incorporated how would this work on the ground? Would it just be you'd have all these different bins around the university and they all have this sensor technology? So what we proposed was that, again, we'd use that people tracking sensor to identify the high traffic areas throughout the building and we'd initially position you know, a small number of these bins in the high traffic areas and then, again, we can gather data to identify more usage trends and perhaps position the bins in different locations where they're going to be most needed most useful how do you then get notified that hey been in building 11 near the toilets needs to go out mm. to the big garbage bin like how do you get that data yeah so that's why we had the two programmers who joined our team and that was kind of their side so what they were building two uis so one was for ui user interface so one was for like actual users getting the points so it was quite like a little mobile app you know quite pretty looking thing very easy to use you scan your phone you get your points has a map and a barcode all that sort of stuff and then the other one was for like a management side so it'd be a bit rougher in terms of how it actually looks but it it'll have how full the bins are because we had data can we had wireless technology was the idea so the bins were connected to a main system and then that would have how full the bins are where they are at that particular time and then when they're full, they would send an alert to the, like a computer and it would tell them which bin's full. Why did you include the incentive collecting points? Because do you think otherwise, if maybe there wasn't that going on, people wouldn't really care as much? Yeah, um, we did a bit of research. We found a Victorian study which says like 35% of people litter. So we're saying that 35% of people will just drop their rubbish on the ground. And then there's that other thing that Walt Disney did and he, like his parks are designed because he said people only ever take five steps before they drop their rubbish. They're never going to carry it more than that distance. So what he did was he put bins at every five steps. But obviously you don't want bins everywhere in a building, like an office building. You want it to look nice. You want it to be a workspace environment. So I guess it's just another way of incentivizing, like getting people to actually put their rubbish in the bin rather than drop in on the ground. Because this way, if they do it, they might get a cheaper coffee or they get some printer credit. I was speaking to, and I'm probably, maybe I got the complete wrong idea of bins moving yeah. like and taking the rubbish yeah. to like a depot point. We put forward, we had a pitch and we put forward stage one development and then future development. So we were showing that like, this is where the bins could be in the next like 12 weeks, a couple of months is what we could have as a product. And then the next stage is like in the future, as the technology advances, this is where the bins could be going. And that's when we brought in robotic bin technically. So there's like spectrography, which uses light and it puts light through materials and then it measures the refraction of the light and it can identify what kind of material it is. So that's a technology we have at the moment, but it's a huge machine and it's quite expensive. So obviously you can't put that in a bin, but like in the future, potentially, 
that kind of thing could be in our bin to monitor if you're actually putting recyclables in the recycle. Right. Oh, okay. But this is obviously just a future idea. Yeah. Mm. But that's also one that makes a lot of sense too. Should you have these self-automated yeah. bins that move to the highest traffic area if they've got room and they're like, hey, yeah. you can throw and rubbish in here. reduces how many bins you need in the building. So again, gives the building a bit of a cleaner look. Mm. And then focusing on UTS was kind of like... We're an innovative uni, that's the idea. The technology right now, people probably don't think you need it or bins a bin, that's all you need. But it was kind of focusing on UTS, trying to push the reputation of being, you know, we're taking that next step before anyone else kind of thing. And then obviously there is also that sustainability side as well. Sean and Jonathan, students in the Faculty of Engineering and Information Technology at the University of Technology, Sydney. Thanks for listening to the show. Think Sustainability is a collaboration between the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Colin Sustainability. You can find us also on iTunes. For more info, also head to our website, 2SER.com forward slash Think Sustainability. I'm Leah Summerglue. I'm Jake Morecambe. See you next week.